Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We are not going to be able to return to a higher education system that looks equitable. We have seen them. They have reared their ugly, grotesque heads, and we cannot put them back in the box. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, America, and listeners throughout the world. We all have some big feelings about school right now, do we not? It's okay. What those big feelings about school tell us is that school consists of multitudes. So we're going to talk about that today, the multitudes that school contains and what we can be learning through COVID-19 about those multitudes. But before we jump in, we are so excited about what we have planned over the last two weeks of July for you here. Sarah, tell the people. We are doing a series called How to Be a Citizen. We're going to talk about everything. What is this country? What are we doing? How do we participate in it? I've recently become obsessed with the difference between citizen and denizen. Like A denizen is just an inhabitant. And for better or worse, I think a lot of us have just been inhabiting this country. And we are hoping through the course of this series to inspire you to participate in the country and to think deep thoughts about our structure of government and how it can be improved 
and what Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were thinking in all those Federalist Papers. So we're really excited about it. We hope you are, too. It will premiere next week, next Tuesday. We are giving this whole beautiful episode over today to educators in our audience, people from a variety of perspectives. Because as we've shared with you before, we've been thinking so much about how coronavirus hasn't created problems as much as revealed them and accelerated our need for solutions. We've seen it in healthcare and the economy, but we have seen it with particular clarity in education. And between the upended school year in March, long distance learning, canceled graduations, the ongoing ongoing, ongoing, very passionate debate about how to reopen schools. We are all looking at our education system with fresh eyes, and we really wanted to spend time with people who have been working in this system for years to help all of us understand the problems on a deeper level than how many of us are reckoning with them for the first time. So instead of just obsessing about this fall, we wanted to think about falls 20 years from now and what education is doing right and what education is doing wrong. So we sat down with an expert in early childhood education, a public school teacher, a homeschool mom, a former high school English teacher and current director of a college honors program, a college admissions officer. And we're bringing some of our interview with the lieutenant governor of Kentucky, who also serves as the secretary of education back as well. So we expected, given that range of people Sarah just described, to hear really different things depending on where these folks worked. And we were dead wrong because Mm -hmm. we heard one single overarching problem in education over and over and over again. Equity. Inequities in the system are so, so deep. The equity. Existing inequities. Of equity. And these are equity issues in the access to education, but they're also equity issues when we really see in all its complexities the different needs schools serve way beyond educational instruction. And those needs are covering an entire range from babies in Head Start to college students. I sit down with September Garrity, who's a consultant in early childhood education. Let's listen to her talk about this. I think in terms of a bigger societal issue, there are lots of inequities that have been revealed like this. So I think about some of our programs that serve infants and toddlers and families that are on childcare subsidies rely on those programs to provide diapers and wipes and formula for a good chunk of the day for their kiddos. And all of a sudden now they're having to buy those things. And in many cases, they've also lost their jobs. And so there's been a real emergency around just like basic supplies for babies because that subsidized childcare has taken care of a lot of that in many cases and now that system. And, and we have certainly had programs that have been doing like pickup places where you can still pick up diapers and wipes. And and certainly um, if they're still having slots paid for, they've been able to continue to provide some of those services, just the way that school districts have continued to provide meals in many cases for families. But I know many people who are like working at a state level ended up trying to source a whole bunch of things for childcare providers when everything (laughs) kind of fell apart. So I don't think it has revealed anything new. I think it has just exacerbated the issues that were already there in terms of what I think our biggest problems are 
when we talk about care for young children in this country specifically. And then I invited my dear friend, Kate Lambert, who has 13 years inside a classroom. She taught both of my boys in kindergarten and is currently teaching fifth grade writing. I think that what COVID has brought out that maybe some people were not aware of is just everything that schools do to help all kids. You know, we are, we are not just educating kids. We serve as childcare. And I think something else people have seen is the food service. That is huge. You know, I know that our district has been feeding you know, thousands of families every week since this has started. You know, I'm, you probably already know this, but, you know, our district is everybody is free and reduced lunch because we have enough students that qualify, and they truly do depend on those meals to get fed. It's, it's a multi-service thing. And a lot of schools, I know Paducah City, but I think McCracken County does too, is our, the family resource coordinators. I mean, they are, yeah, I mean, they are just like a critical component for you know, ensuring some of the equity. You know, they help parents. They connect them to services. They provide them with school supplies, clothing, just really anything that a family might need. You would think that some of these issues would become less important upon graduation from high school, but there are real issues of equitable access from college admissions on through that process. We were so delighted to spend some time with our listener, Grace Lawhead, who we have met on the Nuance Nation tour and heard from by email before. She has been an admissions officer for over 15 years, and she is seeing COVID reveal many issues in the admissions process. It's complicated. <laughs> it's really, um, I've been telling folks and that I've been having conversations with in my office that it's really nuanced um, to steal y'all's um, catchphrase. Things that we're thinking about um, as we are approaching this is that it's not just about making sure students can either have the education delivered in the fall or not. We're looking at an entire class of students for whom how do we even evaluate their applications to college? All of those things that we think of traditionally that rising seniors would be doing over the summer, they either can't do or have limited capacity to do, you know, college tours, doing that college interview, you know, really finding ways to demonstrate interest to institutions has been disrupted in a pretty major way. And there's this whole other layer of equity, right? Um, because we've been able to pivot to virtual recruitment, meaning that, you know, if you were to go to any of our websites right now, most of us have um, virtual information sessions that you can attend that are live so that you can ask questions of admission officers and of current students. Uh, most of us have some sort of virtual tour so that you can get a sense of what's going on on campus in that way. But that's dependent on having you know, Wi-Fi and being able to have access to that. Um, and so we're having, and the savviness to know that you should be doing that. Um, and so we've been having lots of conversations in our office um, and with colleagues across the field about what does that even look like for getting in front of students and being available to students. 
We also spoke with Jenny Walters, who was a high school English teacher and is now the associate director of the honors program at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and sees COVID really finally destroying this idea that college was a place where students could experience true equity. In this country, we talk about education as a great equalizer, right? Especially in higher education, it's easier for it to look like that, right? Because we don't see the home lives of our students. We are not interacting with parents, guardians, caregivers. There's actually a federal law against us doing that. You know, um, it, it's different than the K-12 system that where teachers are closer to that home life. Um, higher education is further removed from that, that sort of home life, whether that be, you know, living with your guardians or living in an apartment, you know, whatever it is, whatever the situation that the student's in is. Well, in March, everybody transitions to Zoom, theoretically. And what, what we suddenly see is students who can't meet with us over Zoom because they don't have a laptop. They don't have a webcam. Students who are uncomfortable having their video on because they don't want you to see their living space. You know, we had a and I can't recall the specifics of how this came about, but at some point, I want to say in April, our university created a, and our university is not unique. A lot of universities did this. They created sort of hot spots on campus where you could go and you could park your car in a parking lot, right? And use the university Wi-Fi because you might not have Wi-Fi in your apartment. And so I think what happened is it no longer looked like the great equalizer, right? It never really was because the inequities in the system are so, so deep, but it looked like it for a really long time. And all of a sudden it didn't look like it. And you couldn't, you couldn't ignore it anymore um, because you had to figure out a way to help your students learn, right? You had to figure out a way to meet with your students. If they said, well, I can't meet with you over Zoom because I don't have a computer, you had to figure out a different way to meet with them. It wasn't like, okay, well, we're just not going to meet. You know, I hope, <laughs> I hope that's not the answer. You know, the answer should be, well, okay, now we have to get really creative because we have to figure out how to make this work. So as educational institutions, pre-K all the way through college confront this issue of equity, we also heard consistent themes from our wide variety of experts, that this has required us to look long and hard at issues of funding that have existed mm -hmm. for decades, but that we mm -hmm. have largely ignored as a society. And fittingly, it was Julie Boggart who homeschooled five kids and worked as a freelance writer before creating her company Brave Writers that helps homeschool parents teach writing, who most clearly articulated that funding issue. So the first thing that I think is missing in education is a level playing field. I wish I'm not the woman, but your audience might be. Someone needs to take charge of this notion that property taxes fund local school districts. We cannot punish people for having children who don't have access to the internet or 
having a computer at home. Right now, during this COVID time, what we're finding out is disadvantaged families, families that are below the poverty line, those kids can't even get an education because they don't have computers or internet at home. That is criminal. Uh, it seems to me that across the board, education should be the one place that is always fair, regardless of your economic circumstances. So I, I would support that in a heartbeat. I think that the internet should be a public utility and it should not just be pay to play and privileging some people and others. Those two changes would really start to reform education in America. And look, the hard truth is and what ex what we really got a clear picture of because we talked to people in this wide range of education is it's not just a problem in funding when the funding is tied to property taxes. There are problems with funding in early education. And here is September Carity on that. And I think that those problems won't be solved until there's kind of a national will to have some sort of early childhood system that is better funded. And that probably means governmental funding. Of course, public education isn't the only place where funding issues exist. Let's hear from Jenny Walters again. It seems to be a consistent phrase in higher education that, you know, there's a funding issue. There's a funding issue. And there is uh, to a certain extent, right? It varies state by state, but generally speaking, over the course of the last 30-ish years, state funding has gone down and the, the amount of money that we need to keep operating at the level that we operate at doesn't go down. And so where do we make that up? Theoretically intuition, which now has led to, you know, a student loan crisis and a student debt crisis that is unsustainable. Um, and I think the current generation is very financially conscious. Um, those that know to be, they see what, the student debt crisis has done to their older siblings or friends. And so they're making decisions based on that. You know, they might do their general education requirements at a community college because it's cheaper and then transfer to a four-year school if they want, if they still want a four-year degree after that. Um, they might get an associate's degree and work for a while and then come back. That's a different mode of higher education than a traditional, like, I'm going to graduate from high school at 18 and I'm going to go to college for four years and come out with a bachelor's degree. And I think we're seeing more students move through higher education differently. We're seeing students, you know, end up with you know, I'm going to go to this school during the academic year. And then in the summer, I'm going to continue to take courses at my community college, you know, back home or whatever. What the financial issues have done to the way that a student moves through college is pretty monumental. And, and we have to figure out what that looks like. The coronavirus pandemic has also made that very clear because we now have I don't know that we'll actually see the financial ramifications of the coronavirus for another maybe two years or so, right? Um, but some places see declining enrollment. Some places don't. Some places see declining retention. So it's not a question of getting your students to come there. It's getting your students to come back there. Um, because based on the kind of experience they had in spring semester, they, they might have changed schools. Or based on the experience they have in the fall, they might change schools. And so I, I think 
there's going to be a lot of shifting um, in that area as well. I think it continues to be similar to what I said before of, of meeting students where they're at and giving them what they need to be successful. And if we're going to have an f- honest conversation about funding, then we need to have an honest conversation about how we want that funding used. And I think what COVID is really, I don't even want to say exposing because these people and these experts and the people within the system knew about it. But what it's, I think what COVID is doing is opening everyone else's eyes for the first time is asking really hard questions about that the time being spent on grades, the time being spent on testing, both testing in the classroom and testings in the admissions process and higher education. So here's my friend Kate again. Well, I think teachers have known for a long time that even if it doesn't necessarily show up on a state or standardized test, that most of our students are still learning. I mean, all children are capable of learning. It just might look a little bit different than, you know, your average child. So I have students now that maybe are on a a lower level. So maybe they came to fifth grade on a first or second grade reading level they have almost always grown a whole year by the end of that year. The problem is that's not going to show up on a standardized state test. And teachers get so stressed out about teaching kids to do well on these tests because that's how we're held accountable too. If our scores aren't where they need to be as deemed by administration or somebody, then you know, we're going to come under the fire a little bit. What are you going to do to help your students get better scores? Most teachers I know are constantly trying to help their students get better. And I know that most people were thrilled when they said that, okay, we're not going to have the state testing at the end of the year. Um, And then obviously we weren't going to be able to go back at all. But now some states are thinking about not having it next year. And I think it's just allowing us to look as, you know, what are we really trying to assess here? Personally, I would love to see just a revamp revamp of state testing standards. It just sometimes feels like this dark cloud that's looming over all of us. I know it stresses out the teachers and it stresses out the kids in my opinion. Not all of them, but, and I didn't have this so much in kindergarten, but in fifth grade, they are worried about the test. They know that those scores are going to be used to um, place them in certain classes that will be ability grouped, whether it's an elementary school or if they're moving on to middle school, and they get nervous about it. You know, I, I realize that there needs to be some sort of accountability system. I just think that this, like, mass testing, especially for these young elementary school children, is just maybe not the most developmentally appropriate. You know, I have an early childhood background, too, and I just think that it's a lot of stress and pressure when there doesn't need to be. Of course, homeschoolers have been asking these questions about assessment, what Mm -hmm. we value and how we value it in schools for a long time. Here's Julie again to talk about that. Grades don't mean that much. 
And that is a shock, right? We have all been so busy thinking about test scores and grades. And suddenly COVID made grades, grades less relevant. Like there isn't a place to turn in homework. It's hard to issue a test in a remote learning context. So what are we relying on to measure academic progress? And if it's not grades right now, why does it have to be grades when we go back to the old way of doing things? What we've learned in homeschooling is that grades actually inhibit learning. They create a level of stress and performance that prevents students from risk and adventure. And most learning occurs when you are safe to take risks and you can go on an adventure. But I'm not, I'm not really big into um, individual grades. I just like to see that a child is improving and that they're learning regardless of what level that it's to. And look, the fairness and accuracy of grades and testing raise a whole other host of issues at the admissions level for admissions officers like Grace. One of the other big things is testing. Um, there's been a lot of conversation in my world about SAT and ACT. Is it safe to take the test? Um, is it, you know, all of those different things? How many of the tests have been canceled and having access to that? And so you saw early on institutions saying, we're going to be going test optional. We're going to be going test optional. But in the last couple of weeks, you've seen a lot of the IVs start to move in that direction too. And typically once IVs start moving in that direction, Direction, then you get to have a whole other broader conversation about this. And so that's a concern, I think, as we look forward. Um, you know, if you're going test optional, then how are you still evaluating that file and how are you helping students navigate through that? Um, and it, really, there's so much conversation there as well. There is data that, that shows that there is inequity in that, that if you have more access, if you have more opportunities, you are likely to score higher than someone who does not. And how, how do you make, how do you reconcile that? Um, and I think that's going to, with so many places going test optional this fall, whether it's, you know, for just this cycle or whether it's going to be in perpetuity, um, I think there's going to be a lot of great conversations that come out of that. And um, I'm really excited to be able to engage with students on a, uh, on a different level in that way of being able to really dig in. And we all read holistically. You know, we joke in admissions that if you've been to a group information session, if you had a nickel for every time someone said that we read holistically and you can start your own club, we'd be rich. Um, and, and that's pretty true. Um, but I think it's going to be taking holistic admissions to a new level. Um, and I think one of the things that will be short-term but will be incredibly impactful for the, the, the students who are going through is how every school system in the United States has handled the closure differently. Um, we, you know, you have some places that were able to pivot online and their students actually have grades for the junior year. We have places where they could not deliver education in the way that they were hoping to. And so um, I was looking at a transcript the other day and fourth quarter just has no grades on it. There are some places that are changing how they're doing class rank. And I think there's a lot of questions about how are we going to evaluate those transcripts? Um, and how are we going to be able to look at, at 
you know, even just from, you know, county to county, there's going to be incredible variance there, um, which won't last forever once we get in the groove of what, how delivery education in the fall, K through 12 is going to look like, that's going to even itself out. But that is something um, I know a lot of, of rising seniors are panicked about, and I think their parents are panicked about it um, and trying to, uh, you know, really wrap our brains around how are we going to be doing that. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
We're all thinking about what we want education to look like in the long term. The short term is very much on our minds, too, though, because mm-hmm. we're looking at probable long distance learning for many students for really the foreseeable future. And with that, tons of challenges for teachers, administrators, and parents. These questions are especially difficult in early childhood education. I think, again, those conversations are as widely varying <laughs> as the, the states or the programs. I think that no one that I've talked to views continued remote learning as something that is sustainable when we talk about early childhood. There really is no such thing as distance learning for a three-year-old. Everything they learn is right there next to them. Um, and so... I think it's a different conversation if we're talking about even third graders or eighth graders or 11th graders. Those kids can, to greater or lesser extent, handle learning remotely. But when we talk about young children, all of the impetus has to be on parents to make it happen because even a young child can't log into a Zoom meeting on their own. And what we've seen is that even families that were really excited about participating in distance learning at the beginning, by the end of the school year, were no longer excited about participating in distance learning. We still have a child care issue. And so many of our programs really serve the function of taking care of kids while parents work. And I love this idea that For most of human history, we didn't have school. Certainly we didn't have preschool. And I'm a person who's like, hey, let's just have kids be near you and be having conversations with them and be playing with them. And, you know, put a two-year-old on the floor next to you with a roll of masking tape while you're doing your work. And I think there's some value in that. But then somebody pointed out to me like, yeah, a three-year-old can help build a barn. But when it comes to a conference call, they're going to be much more of a hindrance. And so even as I say... We haven't had school for most of human history. We also haven't been doing the kind of work that we've been doing for most of human history. And and certainly when we talk about our families that are working in gas stations and working in grocery stores and working in fast food places, they need child care and <laughs> nobody's going to let them bring their kid to work and they probably don't want to. And so I think that when we talk about early childhood, the reason all of those solutions sound temporary is because if they're not temporary, then we have a huge crisis in childcare. And, you know, what's interesting, I think, is there's this conversation, well, when they're really young, they need to be in a the classroom. And then you see it bubble up hardcore with colleges Because in college, the importance of that residential learning experience is something I think people are really focused on. And all of a sudden, when that residential learning experience is off the table, you realize how important it is to students. We're having lots of conversations about what does it mean to be an intentionally residential institution, um, an intentionally intimate institution and how do we deliver education but deliver it safely Um, and I don't think there's going to be any clean answer as to how we do this Um, and and this is where some of that equity too um, comes into play of because if you are going to be able to deliver in-person education that 
you know, absolutely helps with bottom line, right, with tuition. And if you have to discount tuition, if you are going to deliver that virtually. So there's also this whole conversation of your community and, and um how you're going to make payroll too. Um, but what we've been really talking about is how do we help our students have this in-person experience, but feel confident and safe? Because if you don't feel safe, you can't learn. So as our Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman told us, the role of the parent-teacher partnership in navigating this new terrain is even more important than it's been in the past. We talk now about in education, we call it school family community partnership. And that collaboration is necessary because, um, you know, our parents and the adults in the community are, are the folks who are leading the community now. Certainly they're the business owners, the small business owners, um, those types of things. And so they are tuned into the, the local economy. To be able to create a partnership with your student's teacher is only going to open the door for your child a million times more than it already was. Because what that does is it creates a relationship, first of all. And so as a parent and a teacher, you get to know each other. Um, you get to know a little bit more about the child's um, you know, home circumstances. And you can work together to individualize your child's learning. You know, I, I'll give you an example. I had a student who really struggled in my U.S. history class. This was a million years ago. Um, she really struggled in my U.S. history class. She hated history. She didn't want to do it. She wanted to be a clothing designer. That's what she wanted to do. And she couldn't, could not have cared less about U.S. history, which I get. So her mom came in and just said, listen, I've got to talk to you. She's struggling. I don't know what to do with her anymore, but this is what she loves. So I found a way to take the next lesson and incorporate what this child is really interested in into the product that she created about this time in history. So she's still learning, uh, you know, the things that happened during that time period, but the product represented her own interests and her own passion. I would not have known that if her mother had not come and said that to me and, ha and had we had that open dialogue. So creating a partnership with your child's teacher is so important for so many reasons, uh, but it's ultimately going to mean that your child gets way more out of their education than they would have if there was not a partnership there. And I think what's so really inspiring in this moment, as a parent who, you know, I'm, I come from a family of educators, I, I won't argue that I am as fully versed in them as someone who works in the system, but issues of equity and issues of access and funding, you know, these are things that I care deeply about, have been in many, in many passionate conversations about, and they felt so unmovable. It felt like reimagining public education, getting rid of the SAT and the ACT. All these things just felt like mountains that were impossible to climb. And I think the power of this moment is that everybody realizes like, oh, wait, we can get rid of testing and the sun will still shine. And we can see the, the earth move under our feet and realize like we have a real opportunity. All of us, teachers, parents, homeschoolers, higher education administrators, we have an opportunity to rebuild and think through what we want this to be. I do think that this is a, a moment when all of the blocks have come tumbling down and we're trying to sort of rebuild them the same way. And we should be asking, how could we build them differently? And I don't 
know exactly what that is. And I think some of what makes that difficult is the uncertainty of how long does any of this last. And so people, there are best practices for remote learning and most people didn't implement them because they didn't even have time to learn about them before all of a sudden they had to be doing it. And so I worry that we've built bad habits now, even in the the last three months, or we've kind of created this idea of this is what it looks like. And I, my hope is that we can say, hey, all the blocks are on the table. Let's figure out together how to rebuild it. And let's go back to what we know best practices. And so I think your questions are, are right on. And I also think the challenge is that there are such widely varying circumstances in even family needs and needs of teachers. But my biggest hope is that maybe this sparks a more national conversation about what it means to be an early childhood educator and how those folks get paid and how little they get paid and how much they work and and maybe brings about an appreciation of that. Then COVID came along (laughs) and suddenly the entire planet was schooling at home. I mean, not just the United States, but literally the whole planet. And so my book suddenly became like this bestseller again, only it literally jumped that fence. And what I discovered in talking to parents who came into our space and in the multitude of interviews that I've done is that the questions about education changed in a single year. So when the book first came out and I did, you know, NPR interviews or television interviews, it was always a parent with a child in school looking at me as an oddity, right? Like this weird person who stayed home with their kids and how do they get socialization? You know, how can you be sure that they're passing their classes? But this year, when I went back through this new set of interviews, because my book became popular again, the questions had changed. So parents who were doing these interviews, who worked for radio stations and TV stations were saying, okay, so I've got my kids at home. (laughs) Should I set up a table? Uh, Do we need to set up a schedule? How do I keep them focused? Like suddenly they were wondering about the educational experience. And here's what we discovered together. And I think this is the best gift I can offer anyone trying to think about education now. Education is not about a building. It's not about a teacher, and it's not found in a textbook. Learning is a transaction that is personal to each child. And what this homeschooling moment for everyone revealed is that the parents saw that their children were learning the most, sometimes when they weren't on the Zoom call. You know, I was speaking with one mom who is a psychologist, and I was on her podcast. And she said, one afternoon, my son pulled out his Calvin and Hobbes comic book, And we started reading it together and I started covering up the words and we looked at the facial expressions in these drawings to see if we could read the emotional communication of the characters in each of the frames. And she said, I discovered in one hour that I had just given my child a sophisticated psychology lesson just by sitting on the couch looking at a comic book. So the transformation that I saw happening suddenly with these parents who got to spend more time with their kids is that they realized that the learning moment was this transactional experience of conversation, deep dive into what their kids were interested in, and using their sort of superior understanding of the world to deliver learning, as opposed to just enforcing, you know, finishing the lesson in your workbook. It was, it's been a really vivid picture to me of parents discovering that learning is more than getting a good grade. 
we are not going to be able to return to a higher education system that looks equitable. We cannot deny that these, we have seen them. They have reared their ugly, grotesque heads <laughs> and we cannot put them back in the box. We really have to pay attention to that and, and be attuned to that. Along the same lines, you know, we cannot forget about much of the racial inequity that has made itself very clear to us this summer in so many ways. You know, I'm in Minnesota. I have many students who are from the Twin Cities. Um, and even if they're not from the Twin Cities, they're from Minnesota. And so it has affected them, I think, in a unique way. I think it affects all of us differently. I think it's important for all of us to be doing anti-racism work individually and professionally and in community with our colleagues of color, while at the same time being very aware that it is not the responsibility of our colleagues of color to educate us about racism. I mean, it, this should not be an excuse for us to ask them to do more unpaid labor and more work to educate us. And when I say us, I mean white people about those inequities. They, they are clear. They are very evident to us in many ways. And I also think that the current generation of students is going to push us to ask, you know, how come that student gets different things than I do? How come that's not available to me? I think they're gonna start, they already do to a certain extent, but I think it's gonna become louder, you know, over the course of the next, you know, year and, and hopefully longer. I mean, students are going to be asking us about these things when they come back to campus in the fall, if we are at an institution where they are coming back to campus. They've not forgotten about it just because of the coronavirus. I think we are at a turning point. I think, I think crises put us at a turning point. If you look at the history of this country, lots of change happens as a result of, can happen, as a result of a crisis. And I think that's true of the coronavirus, but also of the murder of George Floyd and all of these other, you know, Breonna Taylor and, and Ahmaud Arbery and, and everything else that we have seen that has become so systemic. What we do, and when I say we, I mean higher education, what higher education does to respond and to change or not change, you know, over the course of the next few years in response to these things, I think is really gonna make or break um, what we do. We have an opportunity. You know, we can sit here and bemoan our situation about having to convert our courses to online or some sort of hybrid model, or we can say, okay, I've never done this before. What do I need to learn? How can I incorporate really cool you know, activities and experiences for my students that will make them feel engaged and excited to come to class, even if they have to come to class on Zoom. How do we do things electronically? How, how, do, we, how do we give the students what they need for them to be successful electronically? 
And how do we use it as a way to bring attention to the fact that too many students don't have reliable internet access and a working computer and a home and food? And, and how do we use it to bring attention to the fact that the lack of basic needs disproportionately affects historically underrepresented populations of students? What we do in response to the crisis that we face is going to greatly determine how we come out of this. Do you sit around saying this is sad or do you do something about it? Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your 
problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So Sarah, after all of these conversations, I'm really curious to hear your most present takeaways that you would apply to the short-term situation that we're living through right now. I mean, it feels like you're just asking me, am I going to send my kids back to school? Are you asking me if I'm going to send my kids back to school? You're welcome to share that if you'd like to. (laughs) You know, I have a five-year-old who needs to learn to read, who has a physical disability for which he receives therapy within the education system. So he, you know, he is my top priority. I really want to see Felix go back to school in the fall. And if the school doors are open, he will be there. And I also have, you know, one of my dearest friends whose voice you heard on this podcast, I want them all to feel safe um, in the education environment. And so, you know, as, as closely as we can get those two priorities aligned, I will be sending my, my kids back. And I hope that, you know, we just got news that we'll have one-to-one, so fourth through 12th, I think, in our city school system, which we have not had, which is unacceptable. And so I think, you know, the priorities of technological access, rethinking the the grades and the testing, like, I hope that those are, they felt like monumental changes that happened in the blink of an eye. And now I hope that we can take that sort of short-term crisis and you know, keep up some of these changes because I think they're really positive. My greatest wish in all of this is for parents to be supportive of schools. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to trust that our schools really do want what we want for our kids. They want yeah. our kids to be safe. They want teachers to be safe. They want to offer the best they can. Most of them don't want any part of these ridiculous tests that drive all of us bananas. You know, that we are on the same team and that the more we act on the same team, the better off we'll be. I've had zero conversations really in my life with educators, especially in the last decade or so, where I've not really learned something about how thoughtful they are about their work. And so when I hear people dunking on the new math or complaining about the way grades are being done because they're not harsh enough. They're not exactly like what we had. When I read opinion pieces about how terrible it is to eliminate valedictorians, I just think we have got to all stop acting like the way we were educated was perfection, especially given that there is zero evidence of that around us, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I just, I really want... As we approach the question of whether it's safe to reopen school, I want, as a member of my community, to trust the decisions that our administrators and leaders are making about that here. Because, listen, as much as there is a an epidemiological impact of my children walking through the doors at school should those doors open, there is also an impact if my children don't walk through those doors and those doors open. Mm-hmm. There's an impact on their peers. There's an impact on their teachers. You know, we got to love our children enough to see 
not only the safety aspect, that first, of course, everybody's got to make the decision that they think is safe. But I want to trust my partners who are making that decision as well and the people who are studying this with better information than I am about what they can and can't do. And I also want to remember that if school opens and the only kids who are there are kids whose families have no other options, that has a serious effect on the learning community as well. Sarah, I know you've seen this, but a lot of our listeners probably aren't on Instagram. And so I thought I might just say the principles that I'm thinking about for myself as we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait to find out what school will hold. Here's what I've come to. School is a community proposition. My children being at school or not impacts in a variety of ways their teachers and their classmates and their administrators, not just our family. I can't, don't need to, shouldn't make decisions in isolation. If we're doing non-traditional instruction again, I can't, don't need to, shouldn't try to go it alone this fall. I live in a neighborhood full of kids and parents navigating the school year too. We can work together and create a safe, happier, healthier structure for our kids than I did by myself. My children will be fine. They will learn because and in spite of the circumstances. I can't, don't need to, shouldn't protect them from hard things, boredom, and less than ideal circumstances. There are families for whom school, whatever form it takes, will be harder. That is always true. My responsibility beyond my family is to identify one good way to contribute to the world. I can't, don't need to, shouldn't try to shoulder all the suffering. School, whatever form it takes, will be difficult for teachers and other school professionals this year. I can't, don't need to, shouldn't try to fix that. I can, do need to, should offer a lot of grace, ask people what they need, and lend my hands in hand sanitizer. Schools are caring too much. It's more important now than ever. And that's a conversation worth continuing. Yeah, I think what I hope so much moving forward is we can see ourselves as connected and a part of the school community instead of just a service we consume. The threads of entitlement and privilege and martyrdom... (laughs) that often run through conversations about public school, they really break my heart and they wear our teachers down and they wear our administrators down. The truth is they put teachers and administrative in a defensive posture. And then guess who suffers? The kids, you know, like we're all in this for the kids and they can't advocate for themselves. And so when we are advocating for whatever we think is best, you know, even if, We are disagreeing about the strategy. Let's hope that we all agree on the basic value that we want these systems to work best for the kids and not just serve our kids or serve our needs or relieve our stress or recognize our struggles. I hate that we get in this combative posture and, like I said, just treat it like a product. You know, we are all connected to each other through this system. And we are learning that in real time and seeing it in real, real ways because of COVID-19. And that is true whether you have a kid in the school or whether you work in the school or not. Public schools are a part of our communities, whether you interact with them in your life or not. I hope what this crisis reveals more than the big issues and undercurrent of problems is just how essential this institution is to our communities and to our democracy and how we all participate in it 
And we need to think thoughtfully and open-heartedly about how we do that. Yeah, there's no one who's being selfish in this conversation. I'm hearing that word thrown out a lot. It's not selfish of parents to want school to start again because because they need childcare. There aren't other good options for childcare, you know? And it's not selfish for teachers to say, I don't want to go back in the building unless it's going to be safe and I don't believe it's going to be because it's important for them to put their personal health and safety first too. It is threaded through everything. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation we've been having around policing that no one's saying we don't need any kind of public safety officer. With police, we're saying we are using those public safety officers to do all manner of things for which they are not well-trained and for which they are overarmed, and in which there are unhealthy power dynamics. Well, this issue of going back to school reflects similar absence of clarity about priorities. Is school first about kids and learning? Or is school first about childcare? Or is school first about food security and ensuring that children aren't being neglected and abused in their homes? Nobody seems to know because it's all of the above. Because we've said society has a ton of problems. We really have two tools, the police and the public schools. And we bring those tools to the entirety of 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 everything. And it's too much. And so we got a lot of hard conversations to have about what our priorities are. We're not good at having those conversations in the midst of a pandemic and a discussion of systemic racism throughout the country, but you know, that's what 2020 has given us and we're going to have to we're going to have to work through it. Well, we always appreciate you joining us as we work through these hard conversations. We are desperately grateful for the people who lent their voice to this conversation today and shared their thoughts and opened their hearts to talk to us about, you know, something that is a part of their everyday life and will continue to be a part of their everyday life long after this pandemic is over. So thank you to our guests. Thank you to all of you. So we will be back in your ears tomorrow over the Nuance Life. And I don't want to brag, y'all, but we really fixed, we really fixed something that needed a word. Beth, tell them what we made up. So probably all of you have experienced or someone close to you has experienced that time of life when all your friends are getting divorced and it's really weird and it happens in a big wave. And we needed a word for that. And we came up with a word for it. And we talked about some strategies for thinking through it. And I hope that you're going to find it enormously helpful. So join us tomorrow on The Nuanced Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.